The scripture reading for this morning is Romans chapter 9 verses uh, Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 21. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've reached the end of our series on conflict resolution. The first week of the series, we looked at James chapter 4, and we saw that all the conflict that takes place between us is conflict that first starts within us. James tells us in James chapter 4 that the reason why there are fights and quarrels among us is because there are inordinate desires that are at war within us. Next, we looked at the power of the gospel for healing our relationships, a power that we saw then begins with God's work of healing in our own hearts. And then we looked at the slippery slope of conflict. We were reminded from scripture that we're called to be peacemakers, but we so easily slip into peace faking. We look to escape conflict when it arises, or we slip into peace breaking. We go on the attack when conflict arises and we fail to act as those who are called to pursue peace in all our relationships. After that, we began to look at the four G's of conflict resolution. The first G, to go higher, to seek God's glory in the midst of our conflict, to bring God into the conflict. Second, we looked at the need to get real, right? To get the log out of our own eye, to recognize that no matter what percentage of the conflict is our fault, we are 100% responsible for that percentage. We need to own our contribution to the conflict. Third G was gently engage. We're called to move toward that other person with a a desire to reconcile with them. And then last week, we saw the need to get together on lasting solutions, which begins with a willingness on our part to extend forgiveness. Last week, we really brought things full circle. We discovered that the place from which conflict springs, the heart, is the place from which conflict resolution must spring, the heart. 
Genuine forgiveness, true forgiveness cannot come from anywhere other than the heart. It can't be just an act of the will alone. Because true forgiveness is costly. There's a price that must be absorbed. You determine not to make the other person pay when you choose to extend forgiveness. That is something that Jesus tells us that we looked at last week. Must come from the heart. This morning, we wrap up by considering a scenario that some of you find yourselves in right now. And that's this. You've tried the four G's. You've, you've followed the book, so to speak. You've tried to pray and make it a priority to glorify God in the midst of the conflict. You've done your best to get the log out of your own eye and to own your part of the conflict. You've gently engaged with that other person, hoping for resolution. You've considered what it cost God to forgive you. And you're willing to absorb the cost in order to forgive that other person. You're ready to grant forgiveness, but it hasn't worked. They want nothing to do with conflict resolution. That other person refuses to engage. Or even worse, they blame you. What do you do? How do you move forward? How do you persist in love when the person whom you are working so hard to reconcile with refuses to reconcile with you? Romans 12 helps us a great deal when it comes to that very, that very need, that very difficulty. Romans 12, Paul's telling us in this passage how we are to demonstrate genuine love both within the household of God, but also he broadens the circle in the second part of the passage to talk about how to demonstrate genuine love in the world at large, including those who are our enemies, including those who have hurt us, who are actively persecuting us, who are doing evil or have done evil toward us. Paul addresses how to deal with people like that in this passage. It all falls under the heading of genuine love. Where does the strength come from to love like that when you've been hurt so deeply and that person laughs in the face of your desire to reconcile? If you've been wronged by someone who refuses to acknowledge that they're wrong and then refuses to be reconciled. And if you've been listening to what Paul said in this passage as we read it about genuine love, then you realize that not only as we read this passage in Romans 12 are we getting steps, if you will, a map, if you will, to follow, we're also getting a mirror held up before us. This call to love genuinely, even those who have hurt you deeply, is a mirror. It does reflect something of what's going on in our hearts. So what does the mirror reveal for you? A heart that is at best indifferent? A heart that's calling down curses on the person who has hurt you? A heart that's ready to make the person pay? If you've been hurt by someone deeply and they refuse to reconcile, 
You know how hard the idea of loving that person the way Paul describes in this passage. And Paul is just reflecting what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and what Proverbs 25 says and what the whole Bible points us to, which is a a, a willingness to love even those who have hurt us. You know how hard this is. But be encouraged because the love that Scripture calls us to demonstrate to others also points us to the one who has poured his love into our hearts. And so we're going to look this morning at genuine love. We're going to look first at the, um, the baseline commitments or the baseline expression of genuine love. The baseline expressions of genuine love. Secondly, we're going to look at the costly refusals of genuine love. And then third, we're going to look at the irresistible power of genuine love. So the baseline expressions, the costly refusals, and then the irresistible power of genuine love. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. Lord, some of us as those who are are deeply grieved because we are in conflict or we have been hurt deeply by people And we have desired for things to be set right, and they just haven't been. And Lord, for some of us, that's not where we are right now, but we know how we tend to hurt one another. And we know that sometimes it takes time for reconciliation to be achieved. Sometimes it doesn't get achieved. And so, Lord, we we hear this call to genuine love, and we cry out for grace and for help. Because we want to follow you, Lord Jesus, in the way that you have set for us as one who has demonstrated his love, your love for us, perfectly. So help us, O God, to be people who love well as we study this passage. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the baseline expressions of genuine love. We see that in the first part of this passage. In in verse 9 through verse 13, Paul is primarily talking about what love looks like within the Christian community. There are some baseline expressions here. I use the word baseline intentionally. I don't want to you know, blow by this and get to the hard aspects of loving your enemy, which you see in verse 14 and following, without just allowing ourselves to kind of, you know, be challenged by the fact that there is a baseline expression of love that is to characterize every church, every community of Christians. In verses 9 through 13, you see evidence of genuine love that is to be present within each one of us, and then expressions of genuine love that are to be demonstrated amongst us. So first, let's look at these evidences of genuine love within us. And you see the first thing, uh, the first one right there in verse 9, after Paul says, let love be genuine, and then the rest of, really, almost through the rest of verse 13, or chapter 13, but for sure, through the passage that we read this morning, everything that we're talking about here unpacks what it means for love to be genuine in real time. So, let love be genuine. And then he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. First evidence of genuine love in your heart as an individual is that you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. When scripture says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, that word abhor means hate exceedingly. 
And that word hold fast means cleave. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19, verse 5, when he says a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's how tightly we are to hold to that which is good. We want to, you know, be honest with yourself. We want to see how close we can get to evil without sinning. And scripture calls us to abhor that which is evil and love the things that God loves. Here's our first evidence of genuine love within us. Secondly, in verse 11, we see that there must be a zeal to serve the Lord. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. In other words, you are one who is looking to see the needs that are around you and out of love for Jesus, Meet those needs. It's not something you begrudgingly do or reluctantly do, but that you're actually zealous to do and you move quick to do. You're not slothful in serving the Lord. And then third, an evidence of genuine love that is within you is an inner buoyancy in the face of adversity. And you see this in verse 12. Take a look at that passage, that verse with me. Verse 12, Paul writes, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Now, I've talked a number of times about the distinction between biblical hope and worldly hope. I think it's important to remind us, however, uh, once again, worldly hope is characterized by certainty with respect to time and uncertainty with respect to outcome. So the classic example, I have a job interview tomorrow at 1 p.m. I hope it goes well. I don't have a job interview tomorrow at 1 p.m. It's just an example. I have a job interview at 1 p.m. Certainty of time, uncertainty of outcome. I hope it goes well. Biblical hope reverses that. Biblical hope is certainty of outcome. Grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the promises of God. Certainty of outcome, Jesus Christ will return. This is the Advent season that we are in right now. We are celebrating the fact that Christ has come and are filled with hope, anticipating his return. But it is hope that is not grounded in uncertainty with respect to outcome. It's grounded in certainty with respect to outcome, uncertainty with respect to time. We just don't know when. Steadfast, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. I think of that hymn by you know, George Matheson, A Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I want to say it's my favorite hymn, but every time a pastor refers to a hymn, that in that particular moment is his favorite hymn. That one is my favorite hymn right now. A Love That Will Not Let Me Go by George Matheson. There's a beautiful line in it that if you know, you know your Old Testament, you understand the illusion. George Matheson in the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, writes this, I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. I trace the rainbow through the rain. He's, he's calling back to, he's thinking about the, the promise of God made to Noah, the, the flood that had come upon the earth, God's judgment that was there and present, the rainbow that was set in the sky is a sign of God's promise never to judge the earth that way again. The, the rainbow isn't even actually a, a Hebrew word. It was the battle bow that had been set down visually on the earth 
depicted by the, the refraction of light that we call a rainbow, the battle bow set down upon the earth. I trace the rainbow through the rain, through the suffering that does still take place. I feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. There will come that great day when Jesus Christ returns. All things will be made new. Everything will be set right. I can trace the promise through the hardship, through the suffering, and know that that day is coming, and consequently be patient in the face of tribulation. And then third, constant in prayer. There's an inner buoyancy in the face of adversity that means that I can remain constant in prayer knowing that God will see to all that he has promised. Our prayer, more than anything, is a prayer that God would bring our hearts into alignment with his timing, with his purpose, with his plan, and not demand that he come into alignment with ours. So there are these evidences of genuine love that Paul points to within us. And then there are also um, these expressions of genuine love that he points to among us. And the first is what we'll call a family affection. I, I mentioned it already during the, the receiving of new members in verse 10. Um, love one another with brotherly affection. The Greek term brotherly affection is uh, Philadelphos. It's Philadelphia, right? It's the brotherly love, the familial love that we're to have for one another. Family affection is an evidence or an expression of genuine love. Also interesting what Paul says here, outdo one another in showing honor. I thought of what I'm calling competitive honor giving. There are some weird competitions in you know, our world today. Um, there's actually a thing known as uh, extreme, the Extreme Ironing World Championships. The Extreme Ironing World Championships. I know that Wendy would love for me to even like, take a step in that direction. A practicing for maybe one day engaging in the Extreme Ironing World Championships. But it's a thing. Not sure what you win. Ironing board trophy? I don't know. There are the World Foot Wrestling Championships. That's a thing. There's a championship, you know, competition that has to do with who can blow up a hot water bottle with their nose the fastest. Strange. Weird. You know what seems weird if you're not a Christian? This idea of actually seeking to outdo another person and showing them honor. You know, looking for opportunities to defer to that person. Finding ways to celebrate them, to congratulate them, to, to find joy in their success, even if it came at your expense in some way. Looking for opportunities to praise, seeking to outdo one another in showing honor. It's an expression of genuine love that exists within a Christian community. And then finally, verse 13, Paul says, open wallets and open homes. Take a look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, my point here is that the genuine love that Paul is about to call us to demonstrate to those who are opposed to us, to those who are our enemies, to those who have done evil to us, that genuine love is already present in and being practiced among Christians in community. So as you look at that and you think, man, I fall so far short. 
of that kind of love. Be encouraged. Because the work of God through his word, by his spirit that dwells within you, is to increasingly generate this kind of love in you as you look to and rely upon the love of God that has been demonstrated for you in Christ. And so don't make the mistake of saying, I can't even bother going on with verse 14 until I start doing 9 through 13. That's not Paul's point at all. Recognize that genuine love not only is something that God works in the hearts of people and among the community of his people, such that these baseline expressions increasingly take place, but God's love in you is so powerful that it can extend even to loving those who oppose you and have actively tried to harm you. So that's where we're going next then. Second point, the costly refusals of genuine love. The costly refusals of genuine love. Genuine love comes with a steep price tag. We talked about this last week when we talked about true forgiveness and false forgiveness. False forgiveness says, I forgive you, it's fine, but you're still harboring a grudge. You're still keeping score. You're still holding on to that wrong and you'll use it against them at some point down the road if necessary. You'll pull that card out of your wallet and say, remember this? Right? That's false forgiveness. True forgiveness absorbs that cost. It costs something to not retaliate. It costs something to not curse. It costs something to not pass judgment on that other person. It costs something to you to not make that person pay in whatever ways we could envision making them pay. And Paul's touching on that same idea here in this passage. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. What a line. That that person who is opposed to you, who has hurt you, who refuses to reconcile with you, refuses to admit that they've done anything wrong. When you are tempted to call down curses upon them, Paul says instead, call down blessings upon them. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, pray for them. Paul tells us in verse 17 in this passage, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Don't pay back. Don't seek to hurt them because they have hurt you. Instead, seek to demonstrate genuine love. This is the price that's paid by true forgiveness. But let's come back to the situation where some of us find ourselves in right now. You've, you've, you've owned that. You've done that. You've willingly paid the price not to, to, you know, to, not to grant them true forgiveness. And they're laughing in the face of your offer of forgiveness. They're still treating you wickedly. How do you move forward? There are two nevers in this passage that jumped out at me as I read this text again um, after, you know, obviously we've read it all together. Many times we've read through Romans. But the nevers here. Take a look with me at verse 16 and at verse 19. In verse 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And then at the end of verse 16, never be wise in your own sight. What an interesting inclusion. 
Never be wise in your own sight. It's actually the third time in Romans within the last, I don't know, maybe 50 verses. He, he mentions it back in uh, earlier in chapter 11. He does it again uh, halfway through chapter 11. And then here in chapter 12, he touches on this idea of not being wise in your own sight, in your own eyes. And then he says in verse 19, never, never seek vengeance. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. What's happening with these nevers? What is it that you are resolving not to do? And it boils down to this. You are resolving not to take the place of God in the life of that other person. You are determining that you will not do what only God can do in the life of that other person, which is convict and judge. The temptation is great when you have been hurt by someone and they refuse to acknowledge that hurt and you've extended that offer of forgiveness and they've rebuffed it. The temptation is great to take the place of God in that moment and judge and Paul says here, never do that. Never take the place of God over that other person. Leave judgment to God and to God alone. It's hard to do, but God will judge. Now, if you're not in a place right now where you haven't been deeply hurt by someone, you, you may be thinking, let's talk about judgment and vengeance. I mean, come on. Who wants a God who judges? Who wants a God who says, vengeance is mine? That's not the kind of God that, that we in the West tend to like. We want a God of love. A God who doesn't judge anybody. Miroslav Vof is a, a Croatian philosopher. He is uh, tenured at Yale, I believe. He witnessed firsthand the Serbian atrocities in the Serbian war. And he points out this concerning our very Western idea of a God who does not judge, while at the same time we call for nonviolence or non-retaliation in the face of injustice. Miroslav Vov essentially says this. You know, that's a very comfortable, suburban concept. If you've never been around deep injustice, if you've never seen your you know, loved ones slaughtered, your wives and daughters violated. If you've never experienced that kind of injustice, it's very easy to reject the idea of a God of justice. If, however, you have experienced that kind of injustice, the only thing that will keep you from re retaliating and taking vengeance into your own hands is belief that there is a God who will judge, who will set all things right. We must have a God who is just. We must resist the temptation to take vengeance into our own hands. And if you say, oh, I would never do that, maybe scroll back through your Facebook and Twitter feeds and remember what Jesus said about how when we say we hate our brother, we're murdering him in our hearts. And ask yourself if you're really committed to not taking vengeance into your own hands. Genuine love is costly. It means that we say and determine by God's grace never to take the place of God in the life of another person. 
But then third, there is an irresistible power to genuine love. And we see it at the end of the passage. Take a look at verse 20 and 21 with me. Verse 20, Paul writes, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love that picture of your, of uh, heaping burning coals on the head of your enemy. Now, you know, some would say the best way to interpret that is to think, you know, if you do these good things to the other person, they'll get so frustrated and, and so maybe ashamed because you're doing these good things for them and they know that, that they don't deserve it, that maybe, you know, that's what will win the day ultimately. They'll, they'll recognize they're wrong and, and ask for forgiveness. I don't think that that's the best way to understand what's happening here. It doesn't really, you know, line up with everything that, that Paul has been saying about willing the other person's good and looking for opportunities to bless them and not curse them. Uh, the, the book that we're reading, Resolving Everyday Conflict, that we've been working on through our growth groups, actually touches on this, this verse, this passage. And it points out, the author points out that, you know, once upon a time, the way in which you kept an enemy from, you know, assaulting your, uh, your fortress or overtaking your city and climbing up the, the walls was to pour heaping coals on them. It was a surefire way, pun intended, to keep them from assailing you, from, you know, from making it over the wall. It was an irresistible defense, if you will. And it may be best to think that what Paul is saying here, as he pulls out this idea that's also found in Proverbs 25, what Paul's saying here is that your pursuit of that which is best for that other person your pursuit of good for that other person, you're willing to meet their needs such that when they're hungry, you feed them, when they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. That demonstration of love may prove irresistible. It may be something that at a minimum leads to change in your heart, but may, by God's grace, lead to change in theirs. In other words, what Paul is saying here is it's not sufficient to just refrain from pursuing ill. We're actually called to pursue their good. That's what Paul means when he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is something that has to take place in your heart in order for that to happen. Tim Keller, in a recent sermon, uh, touched on this. He said this, their sin, the sin of this person who has hurt you, this, their sin has hurt you. Can you see that it is killing them? Here's the challenging question, and only God's grace can do this in your heart. Can you hurt more for them than you've been hurt by them? Can you hurt more for them then you've been hurt by them. Until you can, you're not free from the evil they have done to you. That's powerful love. And it does not come from us. It is not something that we can conjure up within ourselves. It doesn't come naturally. Where does it come from? Paul told us early in Romans chapter 5. Back in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says this. 
I'll start with verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. These first eight chapters of Romans are really Paul just you know, unpacking and expounding and celebrating the fact that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you put your trust in him for your salvation, there's such a radical change that has taken place. The very love of God has been poured into your heart. That's not something that you did to pull that love down. It's something that God's spirit is working in you. And it has proved to be for you irresistible. When you read Romans 1 through 8, I encourage you to go back and do it later today. What you will see is the net effect of hot coals being poured on Paul's head. Of what resulted when God's irresistible, inexhaustible love was poured out on him. He said things like what we so often quote in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to end with this. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What makes biblical conflict resolution entirely different than anything else that can be found in this world? It is this. When the one who is engaging in conflict resolution is a Christian and knows that he or she has an inexhaustible supply of love that they can draw upon for their ability to love the other person. Love wins at the end of the day because Jesus won on the cross. He paid the price for your forgiveness So that according to his grace and his power at work within you, you will be able to offer forgiveness, to extend grace even to those who are opposed to you, who have hurt you. You can actually grow to be a person who seeks their good. Remembering what Jesus did for yours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises that we find here. Lord, we thank you that this genuine love that you call us to is a love that you give to us. You don't give a command without giving what is needed in order to fulfill the command. And so, Lord, as we think about the conflicts that we find ourselves in, or some of which are are painfully unresolved. Would you help us to draw upon your grace and your love that we might love others well? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.